We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. This conversation is a part of the ROG Black Voices series intended to elevate awareness, evoke engagement, and increase activism. Our special guest today is Michael Smith. He's a recognized thought leader in brand marketing, content development, and production, and he's the chief marketing officer at NPR, my favorite place to get media. Prior to NPR, Michael was a senior leader in organizations like Scripps Network, Cooking Channel, Food Network, and Disney Channel. What I appreciate most about you, Michael, is your willingness to share your voice and lead the change we desperately need. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. I can't wait to learn more from you and with you. So please tell us a little background. Tell us the Michael Michael Smith story in a, in a nutshell. The story began 50 years ago. I was born in a small town in Western Canada called uh, Red Deer, Alberta. My parents are Jamaican immigrants who had immigrated from Jamaica to Canada. And uh, it, it really colored my experience as a person in the sense that I was a small Jamaican boy in a uh, pretty much you know an all Canadian, all white environment when I was growing up for the first two or three years of my life. And then my parents moved back to their home country of Jamaica when I was about three. And I was again an outsider because I was a Canadian kid with a Canadian you know, accent living in Jamaica with a bunch of Jamaican kids. And so they were sort of like, yeah, you kind of look like us, but you don't really sound like us. Um, and then when I was about nine years old, my parents moved to, to the United States for the first time. And I moved to upstate New York outside of Rochester. And again, I was sort of a fish out of water because I was a sort of Canadian Jamaican kid in, uh, in, in upstate New York. So I've always had that experience of being kind of the new kid on the block, the new kid walking into, a, into the lunchroom at school and having to reach out and make friends with people. And it's just given me an empathy for inclusion and, uh, and how important that is. So, um, you know, continuing the story, I then moved to southwestern Michigan, a small town uh, called Berrien Springs, Michigan, with, with uh, my parents had actually gotten divorced and uh, my mother went back to school. And so uh, I went to middle school there and then I went to high school outside of the Washington, D.C. area in Columbia, Maryland. And it was around that time in high school when I really uh, thought about communications and media as a career. I, was, I just was fascinated by the entertainment and media business just as a consumer of it. I didn't really know how to get into it or where you know, that would lead. But uh, I was fortunate enough to get uh, into Stanford University. Um, And again, you know, your theme is generosity. And I never forget, there was a a friend of mine in high school, his name is Donald Nagel, who was a kid who had come from the West Coast and was new in our school. And he really just encouraged me to, to shoot for the stars and apply to a school like Stanford. My guidance counselors at school were telling me to apply to some of the local community colleges. And, and he said, you know, your grades are as good as mine and you, you, could, you score as well on the tests as I do. We should apply to this, these really good schools. And so I did. And, uh, and we both got in actually to Stanford. And, and then I, um, when I was at Stanford, I got very involved in, uh, in the arts and communications and entertainment related things outside of school, uh, outside of class. I played in a, in a, in a uh, rock band and promoted concerts and events on campus and and um, got an internship. Uh, another example of generosity, there was a, a foundation run by the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper 
that had a scholarship program to help get uh, young minority kids into the newspaper and TV business. And so I got an internship with, with one of their television stations in San Francisco. Uh, that was my foot in the door into media. And then I, I still even have some of the rejection letters <laughs> from those days. But I got the job at YNR, which was, uh, got me to New York. And then a couple of years in, I actually just had another lucky break where I was going to my roommate, my college roommate's wedding in Texas. And on the flight back, there were a bunch of people reading media magazines. I noticed the guy sitting next to me on the plane was reading this magazine called Broadcasting and Cable. I started talking to him and he said that they were all coming back from a big TV conference in Houston. And we started talking and he told me that, that, that there might be an opening in his department and I should talk to HR. And this was at CBS television. I called them and then I ended up getting a job at CBS. And that was my first TV job. Uh, and then I worked CBS for a couple of years and I got a job at Disney Channel. The early jobs that I had were in sale, were more in the sales and distribution side of the business. But I really wanted to get more into the creative side of the business, and uh, and it was hard to make that jump. You know, working coming from the sales side, but I but I kept my creative chops up outside of work. I was um, still playing music, recording music in my home studio. Had a side business as a, uh, a model, portfolio, and headshot photographer. And I did this really kind of wacky thing with another guy who, who worked in sales with me. He was also a, he was a frustrated Broadway actor, and we, we did a sort of a spoof musical comedy uh, play about the life of being a sales rep at Disney, and we performed the show at one of the offsite Disney um, sales meetings. And there were some people. We were in the New York um, sales office, and there were some people from the LA studio at the meeting there to present some of the new movies and ideas. And they saw the show and they think also people had had awareness of some of the musical stuff that i was doing and i got a call a few weeks later to come to burbank and you know to hollywood and, and be the creative director for disney channel which was an amazing break for me and uh then i worked at disney in disney channel and creative making basically like the stuff you see like between the shows on disney channel like the the trailers that tell you to watch other shows, the behind the scenes shows about the theme park and other things Disney's doing. But I wanted to take the, the lessons I'd learned and apply that to, a, to an emerging business. And so there was a small company that just started a few years before called the Food Network. And they were looking for their first on staff creative director, marketing director. And uh, I got a job there just by cold calling, literally just writing. I wrote letters to like 50 different TV channels and media companies. And I think out of the actually about 100 letters, I mean, and don't forget, um, Every Sunday I would spend, this is before the days of the internet job searching, where you had to write uh, you know, handwritten you know, letters um, to people. And I would spend the Sunday afternoons writing three or four letters each week. And then after a few weeks, you know, I'd have written about 30 or 40. And, and I think out of the 50 letters, I got maybe one or two responses. And one of them was from Food Network. And so I moved to New York and worked for Food Network for a long time and became the uh, head of uh, marketing and brand strategy at Food Network. And then ultimately helped launch some new businesses for the company, uh, including um, consumer products, restaurants. And one of the businesses was a new cable channel called Cooking Channel, which is sort of a spinoff channel of Food Network and uh, helped create that channel and was the GM and uh, in charge of you know, that business for a number of years, um, making food shows and, and uh, did that until about three years ago when the company owned Food Network and, and uh, Cooking Channel and HGTV, it's a company called Scripps Networks, was sold to Discovery. And so part of the, you know, the corporate uh, acquisitions is that the, you know, the acquiring company um, you know, gets rid of all the executives from the, pre from the previous companies. And so when the call from NPR came, it was just the perfect fit uh, for me. And it's been, you know, I've been here almost, I guess, about a year and a half, uh, almost a year and a half. And it's been uh, just everything that I you know, hoped it would be, except that 
90% of it has been remote <laughs> since because of the pandemic. I, I think I, I went down to the office a few times and then the, the week, the next week we went, you know, we, we went fully remote because of the pandemic. Wow, that is quite a nutshell and an impressive career story. And really just I, what the theme I'm hearing through your story, Michael, is creativity, innovation, and courage. And then by doing those things, you were recognized by someone in Burbank who had an opportunity for you. I just think that's a, it's a great story about like evolution and still staying true to yourself, but finding ways to express yourself and use your gifts. Yeah, I always tell the younger people that, you shouldn't let the job title that you have or wherever you are in your life be the definition of who you are. You should have a definition in your mind of, of, of who you think you are. And you're just, wherever you're standing right now, it's just a stepping stone to that thing. So, you know, it might, might be the, I don't know, you know, the, 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 the inventory manager at Walmart, but that doesn't mean that that's who I am. You know, that's a job I have right now, but who I am is really what's inside of my heart and what, you know, what vision I have for myself. Um, so I always saw myself as a person, this goes back to when I was in college and in bands and rock bands. And I, I just wanted to be that person that had something to do with figuring out what kind of stuff to make that would engage and entertain people and then figuring out how to connect people to the stuff, <laughs> whether, whether it was just writing songs with my songwriting partner in the band and putting up posters over all over campus to get people to come to the show or, you know, getting people to watch a cable TV network or listen to podcasts. It's just, I like that process of connecting people to the content. And it sounds like the content that you enjoy creating most is content that you think is of service to other people. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I am a very curious person and I've been very touched by the, 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 the power of information to educate and lift people. Uh, I think two things. One, it can help people who've been marginalized and maybe undervalued uh, invest in, and grow their own personal value. Um, and then two, it can help educate and teach people who have misconceptions about new things. So there's really, there's something magical. I mean, I was a little kid. My dad bought me a set of encyclopedias and... You know, it was it was wasn't super expensive, but it was something that empowered me to learn and grow and 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 do things that uh, you know that I wouldn't have been able to do you know without the, those twenty six those books. And so I, I worked in a li- I worked in a library when I was in high school, and that impressed you know that stuck with me. I worked in a library when I was in college, and uh, you know education is the great leveler. And uh, so I like content that 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 can do that. That's fantastic, and thank you for sharing the earlier parts of your life story with where you moved and lived and all of that transition and how you often felt like the only individual like you in certain environments, even when you were back in the environment where your parents are from. So tell us about your experiences with racism and feeling like the other or the marginalized population. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, What's happened historically is if you, is that you know there was a point in history where people that you know that are black and brown were determined by the you know the more powerful people in society to be less than and you know, and it was in the you know in the law I mean go back to you know to 1619 go back to slavery it's created it created a situation which you know, you'd expect that you know people who are black and brown have less um, net worth have less have had you know have less education on average less income and have, have lower life standards than, than other people. And what that's created is a sort of a self-fulfilling feedback loop because everybody else in the society then looks at, the, um, at black and brown people and, and, and develops you know, stereotypes and preconceptions based on, and a lot of it's, you know, unfortunately, based on the reality. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was in, 
in high school, this stuck with me that uh, you think about if you're going out for basketball in high school, if you have two kids walk into the tryouts, if one kid is, you know, a tall black kid like me and the other kid is a short Jewish kid, who is the coach going to think is more likely to be started the team and actually i was a really crappy basketball player but i got a chance i was put on the team because they thought i looked like it um and i think that happens all the time to, to, to people of color is that um people these stereotypes have been reinforced and so you you, be, you, you get you know, you're undervalued and marginalized out the gate just because people just rely on their stereotypes and so it means that you have to constantly do that extra work of trying to break that and prove people's preconceptions wrong. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a weight that you have to carry with you throughout your entire life. You know, every time you walk into a room, you have to look around and think these people are thinking something about me and I have to prove to me, them um, that I'm not what they think I am. Uh, so that be, so that's something that I've experienced throughout my career. I mean, the good news is, yeah, obviously with the success I've had is that there, you know, people have been able to see me, you know, beyond what their preconceptions would be. But it is something that is yeah, con- a constant struggle. You know, there's been a lot of research that shows that um, African-American executives, you know, they tend early in their careers to not rise as fast as white executives because of that. You know, the, the supervisors immediately think that, oh, you, know, you don't look the part. <laughs> and so they will promote the people who kind of just fit the, the, the image um, faster. But then as you get into the middle level and late levels of careers, where people's performance starts to uh, have you know, have a track record, you'll start to see executives of color start to rise because people will say, "Okay, we tried the guy that looked like looked the part. He flamed out. Oh, you're still here. <laughs> okay, let's give you a shot." And I think that's what's kind of happened at least in, in my career. When we come back, Michael will share how the media business is about making content that connects with people and how important it is to adapt and change with your audience. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This, listen now. And we're back with more from Michael Smith, Chief Marketing Officer for NPR. The whole essence of the media business, you know, I learned this when I was playing, again, playing in a band. It's, it's all about making content that connects with people, that resonates and uh, telling stories, you know, that, that they want to consume. And that audience is, has changed dramatically over the last 50 years. So it just makes sense that the people making the decisions about the content need to change with that audience. And so if you're an older um, executive who came up in the 1970s and 80s, you came up in a country that was 80% white, you know, and 8% black, 6% Hispanic. It was, it, so there's, you know, even into the 90s, I mean, when you thought about a sitcom, if you were a programming executive in a network, you know, it would be friends, you know, yeah, let's make a show with six white people living in New York. That's what we do. We do. Um, but the world has changed today. You know, as everybody knows, I mean, you know, 50% of, of people under the you know, Gen Zs and younger are, are of color. So you have to really um, look inside yourself and say, if I'm going to be making the content that's going to connect with these people, I need to change and, and, and reimagine the way I think about what the, the world and what works because it's a different world than when I was in elementary school or when I was in high school or college. You have to have a patience. But I think that's one thing that I've learned as time has gone on is 
because you are going to have situations where you're going to be overlooked and somebody else is going to get the, you know, the opportunity that you think you deserve. And it's how do you deal with that adversity? Do you, you know, go into a funk and just sort of check out or do you, you know, use it as a, as a learning experience and say, okay, I'm going to just double down and, and just work harder. And, uh, and it's, it's tricky. You know, it's, we saw that during this, the reckoning last year, that there's a fine line between being patient and waiting for change to come and sometimes having to agitate. And, and that's why I'm so gratified today by the younger generation of people who, you know, they don't have that patience. You know, they bring, they're bringing their entire selves to work. They're holding their companies accountable. They're holding their leaders accountable. I think because of the critical mass of that being so many young people of color in companies, now you're starting to see that pushback. When I was coming up, there were so few of us that we felt we really didn't have the cover. We were just sort of fortunate to be. I remember when I went to Young and Rubicam, you know, which was one of the world's largest advertising agencies back in the 80s. When I first started, I think there were a thousand people in what's called account management at the agency, and there were two black people. <laughs> so, so it's not like we could, you know, um, you know felt we had the, the, the standing to, yeah, the, the voice to, 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 to say anything. Was there anyone there in that environment that you remember being particularly helpful or not helpful? Yeah, you know, there was a guy named Orville Dale who was the head of the internship program and sort of diversity recruiting. And he was one of the most senior African-Americans at the agency, he worked in the, in the sort of HR part of the agency. And, and he was you know, just people like him who were just in spots that you could see that, you know, they had made it to a VP level, SVP level, that there, there was, it was possible and just their example. And, and you didn't realize until you got into it yourself, it's like the duck, you know, how they look so um, easygoing on the surface, but you realize all that's going on and all the, the struggles they, they'd had to go through, but they kept their heads up and they were just, you know, solid role models and positive and made you believe that you could aspire as well. Oh, that's great. Is there anything that you can share with our listeners who are in that spot where they they know that they have been overlooked for a promotion or an opportunity or an invitation to a certain network because of the color of their skin or because of their ability or disability that you could offer as advice to stay the course and to be strengthened by the setback? Yeah, I think it's always to know your worth and, and not let your perception of your worth be colored too much by the people that you work with and that you're supervised and by your supervisors. Oftentimes I've seen people, you know, how they're evaluated by their boss, which is, you know, one individual, one, one perspective is how they kind of see themselves and realize that if you were to you know, zoom out and, you know, have a hundred people look at you, it would be a very different story. So don't let that get in your head and realize that there are many other opportunities beyond the place that you're working especially in, in today's world. I mean, there, you know, we're, this is a really unique moment. People are looking to diversify their organizations. If you're you know, hitting a wall someplace, you know, look around and use your power. I love that. And like you said earlier, that you're not your job. You're currently enrolled in that job, but that's not who you are. That's really helpful. So you're a generous person. You're willing to contribute. You support activism and ways in which the world is, is growing and evolving in a positive direction. How have you seen generosity at work at NPR? Yeah, you know, I think NPR is uniquely positioned for generosity. I mean, that's why we were created. I mean, the, the whole mission of NPR uh, came out of the Public Broadcasting Act in the 1960s during the Great Society Program, where there was a belief, you know, by the government and the country in general that 
we needed to invest money in creating media content that was beyond what the free market could create. So you know, free market creates you know, sitcoms and movies and stranger things and all that. But there's other kinds of content that the public needs. And uh, that's why the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was set up and you know, why PBS started, why NPR started. So we've always had this public service mission about creating content that would enrich and, and create a more culturally um, healthy society. I think the struggle we've had is when we started, going back in yeah, 1971, this is our 50th anniversary, you know, the country was 80% white, only you know, less than 20% diverse. And NPR's staff and you know, content looked that way. But as the country has diversified, um, you know, we've not kept up um, as much in terms of diversifying the storytelling and the, uh, the content uh, and, and, the, and the executive leadership uh, you know, at, at the company. And so that's been a big focus uh, it's come from the board. It's come from our employees. It's come from everybody who really believes in what public media should be, and that public media should be the leader in this in in, in the issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. And so, I've been really excited that you know the 15 months I've been in it, in, in, in it that there's just this passion for us to be the lead because we're about telling stories uh, that you know are often overlooked and marginalized. We've always have been, and uh, that's what public media is for. Absolutely. And how has NPR been affected by COVID? It's, you know, it's, it's actually helped accelerate the changes I've been talking about because we've been traditionally a radio broadcast company and that radio broadcast audience is just, uh, you know, it's been super loyal and, and fantastic, but it's gotten older and it ended in over time and it's not quite as diverse as the country. But our podcasting audience, which is something that we you know, started getting into podcasting about 10 years ago and really more aggressively about five years ago. And it's been a fast growing part of our reach. And it's, and it reaches, podcasting reaches people, our median age of our podcast listeners, only 36 and about 42% of our podcast listeners are of color. So it's very different than our radio audience, which is in late fifties you know, and less diverse. So um, we've been, you know, moving more into podcasting uh, over the last few years, but I think COVID really accelerated that because what it did is it, it reduced the amount of auto commuting that people were doing. So that reduced their occasions for listening to the radio in their cars and people were at home more. And so they started listening to podcasts more and uh, that's, and that's helped you know, diversify our audience. So that's been the big impact is it's just accelerated that shift from just listening to us on the radio to listening to us on demand. What are other ways that you have seen generosity throughout the pandemic at NPR? Yeah, one of the things that happened with the pandemic, in addition to the change in behavior, was that with the reduction in economic activity because of the lockdowns, uh, one of our key sources of revenue, which is sponsors, sponsorship messages in our shows, which are you know, paid for by corporations who buy, who want to reach our, our listeners, that money really dried up because you know as the, we went into a tremendous recession, and so our revenue was took a huge hit. And a lot of companies, you know, during that time, you, you know lay people off. I mean, unemployment, you know, went to record levels. Uh, but at NPR, we, you know, our CEO and you know, leadership team, we really made a commitment that you know, the number one priority was to preserve jobs and to really, you know, if we're in, you know, we're a pro-social nonprofit, let's take care of our own people. And if that means we're going to have to, you know, tighten our belts and take pay cuts, you know, that's what we'll do. And, and management will lead for, from the front and take the larger, the largest cuts. And we were able to, by doing that, um, you know, we were able to preserve all, all of our jobs. We didn't lay anyone off during the pandemic and you know, everyone pulled together. You know, now we're coming out of it and we're, you know, we're able to restore, restore salary and compensation. But I think it went a long way, I think, for everyone to feel like, you know, whether you're 
you know, in the mailroom or in the CEO suite, it, we all um, suffer, you know, shared this, shared the suffering. I'm sure that uh, that's an experience that, that those of you in the organization treated it like an opportunity to rally together and to be co-creating the solution. So for our listeners who are interested in continuing to evolve as advocates and allies and to create organizations where people belong and are valued and respected for who they are and what they can contribute, what are some words of advice that you have for leaders who are listening who want to create those kinds of environments? Well, I think the first thing is to think about the, the emotional intelligence part of things, the, 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 the connecting with people you know, on a human um, feelings level, which really starts with listening and building trust. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes is this Maya Angelou quote about, you know, people will forget what you say and forget what you do, but they'll never forget what, you know, how you made them feel. And so it's just taking that time to show people that you really value them just by saying, you know, just listening to them. You know, we've been internally, we've been going through some some issues with uh, you know, certain groups of employees that have felt like they have not been uh, respected or have been marginalized. And so one of the initial responses was, you know, well, let's come up with a list of different points and you know, an action plan to deal with it. But I think what, what we've been hearing is it's not as much of what's written on a document, but the fact that you're willing to take time to listen to me and to talk to me. And that I'm, a, and, and just, I find that with even my own teams, you know, just taking a half an hour out of your schedule to meet with someone on your team who's not a direct report. Just show somebody that you value them. You know, you're a busy executive. <laughs> you have a lot of things, other things you could do, but you're willing to actually spend 30 minutes of your day or an hour of your day talking to me, hearing about my experience. That shows me, you know, what you think is is valuable, and that, and um, and so I think people have to uh, executives should think more about the generosity with your time and your attention as being you know super super important absolutely yes thank you for that and i think that's such great encouragement to remind us to invest that time and that attention to enable people to feel like they belong like they matter like you care about them that you're interested in them that you're curious about them so you're not just there to give the answers or to answer those questions but to understand where are they coming from how are they feeling how can you be supportive of them and sometimes just listening is all they really need, somebody to care. Yeah, I mean, I'll never forget when I was, I think it was 23, 24 years old, I'd just gotten my first job in TV with CBS as a sales rep. You know, CBS has 200 stations all across the country. You know, I was in New York in the, in the headquarters office, but I went and I got my job, I got a letter, a handwritten letter from a general manager of a TV station in South Bend, Indiana, saying, welcome to the CBS family. And that's, just the fact that he would take the time even to notice that some lowly new guy had been hired at the corporate office and he would write a letter to say, I'm glad you're here. And it, that just stuck with me. I mean, obviously 35, 35 years later. And so I just think the power of those moments of sharing yourself with people is, is so key. Exactly. The time it takes to put a pen to paper and write a note, even two sentences is something that we can appreciate as time invested in welcoming you appropriately to the organization. That's another thing that our listeners can take away is, you know, how genuinely do you welcome people and how do you use your resources like pen and paper to make those contributions that go so far? So thank you so much, Michael, for being you and for being the leader that you are. I'm grateful for our connection and your willingness to share your story with us. Well, thanks, Shannon. Thanks for having me on the show. 
ROG takeaway tip, how to apply what we've learned to our own work and lives. Let's begin by acknowledging and celebrating the 50th anniversary of NPR. It is such a brilliant news station. And learning that their number one priority during COVID was to preserve jobs and that senior leaders took pay cuts to save jobs is remarkable. Happy anniversary, NPR. There are so many gems that Michael shared. Some of the ways that we can model generosity that he mentioned is number one, encourage others, two, listen and engage, and three, hand write notes. Number one, how can each of us be like Donald Nagel? He's the person that Michael mentioned who encouraged him to shoot for the stars and apply to a school like Stanford. And what a difference that made. Who's someone that you know who has a shot at something great and may need a nudge? Nudge them. Number two, listen and engage. The encouragement that Michael gave to focus on emotional intelligence and connect with people on a human feeling level, beginning with listening and building trust, is essential to being a generous leader. Practice the art of being present, really curious, and interested in other people this week. Third and finally, handwrite notes. Imagine Michael sharing an example of that CBS leader who wrote him a welcome note 35 years ago. Please get some stationery or even a napkin and write someone a note. Tell them that you appreciate them, welcome them, congratulate them. A handwritten note tells another person, I cared enough to use a pen. This week, encourage others, listen and engage, and handwrite a note. Until next week, stay generous, everyone. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.